Um, but I'm not going to now. I'm going to do it slightly differently. So you, you only need one side of that bit of paper. And that's the bit with Psalm 84 on. And if you want to know what I was going to do on, with the other side, I'll tell you later. Um, but instead of that, I want to, and I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to ask someone to stand up and read Psalm 84. Uh, so I'm not going to pick on you, just like a volunteer. So uh, I'll just give you a few moments to settle yourself and get ready, and then uh, I'll give you that opportunity. But first, I want to... I want to tell you about a job opportunity. And a job opportunity has arisen because Samuel Roloff died two weeks ago on the 25th of July. And he had his, uh, his family had his Thanksgiving service on Friday. Now, you may have seen that a bit strange to say that a job opportunity has arisen out of that. But let me tell you about Samuel. Samuel is uh, married to Barbara or was married to Barbara. And uh, the members of King's Church Hastings, where we were. And Samuel was just a lovely, lovely guy, pushing into his 80s. Uh, but he was just always, always full of life. Natalie Williams, who some of you will know, put on Facebook, uh, if you'd asked me at any point in the last 10 years, who of everyone I knew was most characterized by joy, I'd have said Samuel. What a joy to celebrate his life today, it's Friday, and think, to think of the joy forevermore he's enjoying now. Now, Samuel and I used to have a conversation every now and again on a Sunday, and it would always enjoy, include laughter, uh, and he had a loud laugh, and uh, he was such fun to be with. Every Boxing Day or the day after, he and Barbara would go to Spain for three months because the climate there was better for his health. And I remember one year, early April, on a Sunday, I'd seen that they were back, and uh, you realise how much you've missed them uh, when you know, they return again. And this, I remember one time, which would have happened probably mid to late April. So I'd seen him around, but hadn't really had an opportunity to chat to him. And we were together in the coffee queue. And he said to me, oh, how are you, Kevin? I said, I'm fine. How, do you have a great time in Spain? And so on. And then he said, oh, Kevin, how's your daughter, Claire? I said, oh. And I explained that she was currently then in Ghana and she was doing well. And, uh, and I was telling, her about, telling him about Claire. And he said, oh, great. And, and how's Tim, your son? I said, oh. And I explained to him. He was in Brighton and he's married. And, you know, I was telling him about Tim. And then he said, how's your other son, Simon? I said, Samuel, how do you know about my children? He said, well, I pray for them every day. We lost a prayer warrior on the 25th of July. He laid down his baton. And the job opportunity is there for any one of you. In fact, every one of you to pick up. I think our country, our politicians, certainly the town of Hastings and the church in Hastings and our family are now bereft because Samuel's with the Lord. But there's an opportunity that arises from that. And every one of us has an opportunity to be a prayer warrior 
as Samuel was. Now, it's a job, it doesn't come with a lot of pay, but there's great reward. There's training on the job. You've got a great boss. Some of your colleagues, mm, you know, <laughs> maybe a bit iffy, but that's life. And although, you know, this is uh, slightly serious, slightly jokey, I really honestly believe that God wants to give you an opportunity to start a life of prayer warrior. And so I'm opening that up to you. I'm not going to give, ask you to respond, stand up or put your hand up or anything like that. But I honestly believe that God is speaking to one or more of you this morning. And it could be anyone. You don't have to be old. You don't have to be pushing into your 80s. You can be just 15 or 16 or 28. It doesn't matter. But if that's you, I'd love to pray for you at the end of this meeting. Now, Psalm 84. Who fancies standing up and reading it for us? You can stand up just where you are. No, well done. Brilliant. Thanks, Linda. Excellent. As you know, we've been going through a series on the Psalms, which we started back in April. I was second in the series, and we looked at Psalm 46. If you remember, and you were here, or you listened to it online, like Psalm 84, it was written by the sons of Korah. And I'm going to do just a quick recap of some of the things I talked about when I looked at Psalm 46, because it's relevant to what we find here in Psalm 84. Korah lived during the period when the Israelites trekked through the wilderness, having left Egypt and were heading for the promised land. Moses was leading the people, but Korah thought he could do a better job and challenged Moses' leadership taking with him a group of about 250 men. The result was not good. And they, with all their families, were swallowed up in an earthquake. They were Levites. Sorry, but somehow, and we don't know, we're not given the details, the sons of Korah survived. They were Levites. And through the generations, they had significant roles in the temple. Singers in the worship, and doorkeepers or gatekeepers. And through Psalm 46, we discovered that they found their refuge in God, despite the tragedy in their family. And rather than holding bitterness towards God and rejecting him, they were drawn towards him. Now, you can imagine that their thinking was simply that it was better to stay on the good side of a God who could arrange a localized earthquake to deal with rebellion against him and against the leadership that he had established. That would not be unreasonable and quite a good life-saving principle. But on closer examination of Psalm 46, it seems that they were not just playing safe, but had actually gained an understanding of this God and his ways, that he is trustworthy, reliable, and faithful through all generations. What we find in Psalm 84 is different again, but a development on acknowledging the greatness of God. This is more like a love song 
expressing longing to be with the person they love. Let's look at it in a little bit more detail, sort of verse by verse, and you can follow it because you've got the verses on the sheet in front of you. The place where you live is so beautiful. I cannot wait to enter your temple. I'm so excited. Every part of me cries out to be with the living God. This sounds like a love-struck teenager. Sorry, guys. Although love can affect people of any age. Who noticed the change in Quincy when Sophie entered his life? A more mature friend of mine is just as gooey-eyed over his fiancée ahead of their wedding later this year. These verses are not about the beauty of the temple, although it may have been fabulous with many rooms and lots of people there. This is saying, you are so beautiful to me that you beautify the place you live, whatever it may look like, wherever it may be. And we know that just like us, the doorkeepers and gatekeepers and musicians were on a temple rotor. And the writers cannot wait to get back to their post. Why? Because they are so excited about being once again in the presence of the person they love. Again, this isn't about serving. However much they enjoyed the role allocated to them, this is happily doing a double or triple rotor just to be near the one who captivated them. Every part of me cries out to be with the living God. If that's not the language of love, I don't know what is. This person is jealous of anyone or anything that gets to spend more time with their loved one than they do, even birds. You can imagine saying, it's not fair. The birds get to fly in whenever they like. In fact, they can even live there and raise their families there. Right where you are, they are greatly blessed being able to live at your temple. Then in verse 5, the focus changes to those traveling to the temple. As Levites, the sons of Korah, both musicians and doorkeepers, as I mentioned earlier, were on a rotor. The priests were divided into 24 courses or teams. And when they were on duty, they would spend a week at the temple from Sabbath to Sabbath. There would have been a regularity to their serving, but at some special feasts, like the Feast of Tabernacles, all the teams were required to be on duty at the temple. Half of these teams lived in Jerusalem. About a quarter lived in Jericho, and the rest were sort of spread around the area. Maybe the writer was one of these who would have had to make a significant journey for their rota at the temple. Certainly these next few verses reflect on the journey to the temple as there's a play on words with some of the landmarks that they would have encountered on the way. Often this journey was referred to as the pilgrim's way. Perhaps he knows even in the moment that he's writing 
that these travelers will be on their way to the temple and he's imagining the areas that they're going through as he's writing this down. In the second half of verse 5, we have their heart's desire is to make the trip to your temple. In other versions, you might read, in whose heart are the highways to Zion? Highways could be translated a raised road or a sacred road for processions. But equally, it could be translated music raised to God in worship. Hebrew language is like that. It's not like English. It's a very different language. In the beginning of verse 6, they traveled through the Baca Valley. Baca is from a word meaning balsam, which is a tree that grows in arid places and was particularly associated with Jericho. But also linked to a verb meaning to weep. Some translations call this the Valley of Weeping. This dry, arid place is transformed into a place of springs with the autumn rain making pools of water. But the word pools could mean blessings. So maybe it was arid, and then at times the rain comes, seen as God's blessing, to bring growth, and then the weeping turns to joy. We don't know. But as a song recalling the journey to the temple, it could be just the very thought of once again meeting with God is enough to turn even the most dry, arid landscape into a place of blessing. And then in verse 8, from town to town, and it's actually more likely strength to strength. How can you get from town to strength? How can it be translated so differently? Well, town to town is picking up the word that it may mean stronghold, which again demonstrates how hard it is to get the right meaning for these verses. But love songs are like that. My love is like a red, red rose. Really? What beautiful to look at but spiky when you get too close. Anyone who's read Song of Songs will know that there are some very strange comparisons. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the, court, the chariots of Pharaoh. Really? Or how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. And your hair is like a flock of goats. Let me read verses 5 to 7 from the New American, and you'll see some similarities, but also some differences. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. There's still that wistfulness, that longing and, to be, and desire to be with the group traveling to the temple. And then this section closes with a bit of a bump as he switches from they 
to me. Almost an acknowledgement that he can't be there. But at least God can hear his prayer. God of Jacob, listen to me. And this is not a vain hope, but based on the history of God's dealings with his people. Hence, the reference to God of Jacob. Through the early Old Testament, we find individuals referring to the God of the patriarchs. Part of the education of their children was to recount the stories of how God intervened in their lives throughout the generations. In Genesis 50, we read this. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. And God uses the same descriptions when he speaks. To Isaac, he said, I am the God of Abraham. To Jacob, he said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. And to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These are not just repeatable phrases, but necessary reminders of who God is, what he has done, and perhaps most importantly, that God knows us, hears us, and intervenes in our lives. And this in turn reminds the psalmist of the king that God has chosen to watch over his people and protect them. Verse 9. Then, as if allowing his attention to be focused on God, the writer gains a different perspective. It's still a song of love, but rather than, I can't wait, I'm so excited, every part of me, we find a realization of just how magnificent this God is. And so, one day in your temple is better than a thousand elsewhere. Others have reached the same conclusion. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. One of the psalmists, Asaph, says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Even serving as a guard on the outer gate, perhaps for only a week on the rotor, was better than living in the homes of the wicked. When we looked at Psalm 46 back in April, I referred to this verse in passing as a comparison that these homes of the wicked were completely destroyed. But actually, it's more than a simple comparison. It's a realization that a week as a gatekeeper is enough. As Paul put it again in Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 10 is, I think, the pinnacle of this psalm. It's as if they've climbed a mountain and broken through the cloud barrier to a revelation not seen before. They've suddenly caught a glimpse of their God and they're, pre they're prepared to trade a thousand days anywhere in the world without him for just one day with him in his temple. In fact, they'll gladly give their lives 
for just a week serving as a gatekeeper. Then the cloud cover returns and we revert to more ordinary reasons for their love of the Lord God. They're no less true, of course, as we shall see. Verse 11, the Lord God is our protector and glorious king. Remember that Korah's rebellion wiped out whole families and yet the sons of Korah survived. He was definitely their protector. He blesses us with kindness and honor. Not only did they survive, but they were chosen to be musicians and servers in God's temple. Places of honor and grace. The Lord freely gives every good thing to those who do what is right. Hmm. Now that sounds a bit like reward for good behavior. And maybe the converse is true that he will withhold good things if you don't do what is right. Actually, the simplicity of the easy-to-read version doesn't actually help us here. This is the New American. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, you might say, that sounds pretty similar to me, but actually the difference is subtle. Walking uprightly has a sense of time and relationship about it. Less regard for the occasional error or omission and more focus on living a life and keeping close contact with God. Whereas do what is right has the sense of assessment, action by action. We know that without God's intervention, his sacrifice and his salvation, none of us is able to do either. We cannot live a life in close contact with God, nor are we able action by action to do the right thing. Being Levites, perhaps the sons of Korah had a better understanding of the grace that God showed, even when they as a people had done their own thing and chosen not to follow his ways. They appreciated his blessings continued to flow, even when their actions were hideous in his sight. Then, as a final summary, they acknowledge great blessings belong to those who trust in you. That's our short walk through Psalm 84. But I want to end by returning to what I saw as the pinnacle in verse 10. What did the sons of Korah glimpse about God that caused them to consider such sacrifice for the sake of one day in the temple or a week as gatekeepers. Recently, I've been reading a book by Louis Giglio with a very unusual title, I Am Not, But I Know I Am. There were moments when reading this book that I felt like my head came through the clouds and I saw something about God I'd never quite appreciated before. I'd like to read a couple of sections to you. They're quite long sections, so you need to concentrate. Well, not concentrate in that they're very easy to hear, but uh, I don't want you nodding off, but you can close your eyes if that helps. God is more massive than our wildest imagination. Bigger than the biggest words we have to describe him. And he's doing just fine today. 
sustaining galaxies, holding every star in place, stewarding the seemingly chaotic events of Earth to his conclusion within his great story. God is constant. He blinks and a lifetime comes and goes. To him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. All of human history could be written on his fingernail with plenty of room left over for more. God has no dilemmas, no quandaries, no counsellors, no shortages, no rivals, no fears, no cracks, no worries. He is self-existent, self-contained, self-perpetuated, self-powered and self-aware. In other words, he's God and he knows it. He is timeless, ageless, changeless, always. After an eternity of being God, he shows no signs of wear and tear. He has no needs. His accounts are in the black. He's the owner, not to mention creator, of all the world's wealth and treasure. He made the gold and silver and the trees we print our paper money on. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all the hills the cows are standing on. He holds the patent on the skies above, not to mention the earth, the seas and their depths below, the breeze, the colours of the sunset and every flowering thing. They are all his invention, his design, his idea. God does whatever he wants. His purposes are a sure thing. There's no stopping him, no containing him, no refuting him, no cutting him off at the pass, no short-circuiting his agenda. God is in control. He sends forth lightning from his storehouse. He breathes out the wind, waters the earth, raises up rulers, directs the course of nations, births life, ordains death. And in the midst of it all, still has time to be intimately acquainted with the everyday affairs of everyone on the planet. God knows everything about everything and everyone. His eyes race back and forth across the cosmos faster than we can scan the words on this page. There is not a bird flying through the air or perched on a branch that escapes his field of vision. He could start with Adam and name every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, describing every detail about each one. Nothing is hidden from him. He wrestles with no mysteries. He doesn't need to wait for a polygraph machine to decipher the truth. He sees clearly, and he comprehends all he sees. He has never known what it is to have a teacher, a role model, an advisor, a therapist, a loan officer, a coach, an adjuster, a doctor, or a mother. God's rule and reign are unrivaled in history and eternity. He sits on an everlasting throne. His kingdom has no end. Little gods abound, but he alone made the heavens and the earth. God has never feared a power struggle or a hostile takeover. He doesn't have to watch his back. He has no equal, no peer, 
no competition. So how did life and everything we hold dear come to be? God. What, who came first? God. Who thought up the universe and everything in it? God. Who was there before you or me or anything? God. In the beginning, God existed fully as God. In the beginning, God was complete, sufficient, whole, glorious, worthy, almighty, perfect, unique. In the very beginning, God was the best of the best of the best. And as God, he has no shortages, no needs, no equal, no problems. The psalmist, giving us a glimpse into time before time, wrote, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But that was just the beginning of time. God has existed unchanged forever. Having no beginning, God hails from eternity past, a concept that outstrips human understanding in the same way that it would tax an ant to explain the design and function of a laptop computer. Before time, God perpetually lived in the presence of God. A beautiful triune deity, Father, Son, and Spirit, surrounding himself with himself in endless, brilliant, and utterly mind-blowing splendor. It's safe to say that in the beginning, and without beginning, God was doing just fine. Actually, more than fine. God was awesome before we ever heard or spoke his name. Yet, even in this state of eternal, pre-beginning, before-time divine bliss, God had you in mind. That thought alone should cause you to drop this book, if you were holding it, in your lap and shake your head in amazement. In the beginning, and from the beginning, the beginning which had no beginning, Father, Son, and Spirit are thinking about how much they love you and how they are going to create you beautifully as you are for the sole purpose of sharing an intimate and forever long friendship with you. Think about it. The divine crafting and pursuing a mere mortal. God reaching down to reveal himself and his matchless glory to mankind. Let this thunderclap of truth sink in. You were in the mind of God in eternity past. Yet as God thought about you and me, his mission wasn't to point us to ourselves, but rather to open our eyes to fully enjoy him. From the start, God was intent on making, we, making sure we knew how truly magnificent he is. Let's worship him.